Today, a simple question that has an incredibly loaded answer. Frankenstein seed, killer tomato, terminator seed. These are all borrowed from scary Hollywood movies and are based on fiction. There's no truth to those movies. They were fantasies. And yet it makes GM seem scary when in fact GM is friendly. And so friendly, in fact, that it can save two million people from dying every year with one genetic modification. They want to be able to have a poster child to say that genetic engineering can help produce a crop that's more nutritious. Because when we look globally at uh, genetic engineering, the vast majority of the traits when you look at global acreage is herbicide tolerance. On RN First Bite, our question is, if your children were dying from a vitamin or nutrient deficiency, would you hesitate to feed them genetically modified food that could save their lives? Because that's a situation facing parents and policymakers across the developing world, where calorie intake doesn't necessarily mean good health. When you consider, for instance, with vitamin A, that somewhere between 600,000 and 2.5 million kids die every year from vitamin A deficiency, it should be getting much higher profile, but it's not. It's one of those sleepers that people don't recognise. Professor James Dale and his team from the Queensland University of Technology have successfully enriched bananas with more vitamin A by taking a gene from a Papua New Guinean variety and putting it into one of ours. The goal is to replicate the same technology in Ugandan bananas because in that country, vitamin A deficiency is rife and bananas are a staple food. But hang on, why go to all this time and effort when you could just give people a vitamin A pill instead? Well, yes, and a very good question. The reason is that, that the two major strategies for overcoming micronutrient deficiencies are food fortification, that is adding those vitamins and, and micronutrients to food, or supplements. We're dealing with the poorest of the poor. They don't buy food, they produce their own food. So food fortification doesn't work for them. And they're also usually too poor or at a distance from health clinics where the supplements are given out. In Uganda, around about 30% of the kids have clinical vitamin A deficiency and up to 80% have iron deficiency anemia. So it's because of their remoteness that you want to introduce something into the diet every day that will gradually over time build up those vitamin A reserves in all the community. That's right, yes. And it's free. If it's in their food and it's the food they produce, there's no cost. There's no ongoing cost. And of course, supplements and food fortification, there is a cost and it's an ongoing cost and quite high. And most of those countries can't afford it. So this is a way of getting those micronutrients into the food supply and to those populations at a very, very low cost. Food scientists like James Dale firmly believe that biofortifying food through genetic modification is not merely an option, but a moral imperative if we're going to prevent needless death. And for many countries like Uganda, where the need is greatest, the banana, James believes, holds the key. Most people, uh, particularly in the developed world, consider bananas as a, as a dessert fruit. It's something nice to give to the kids. It's recognised as being healthy. Uh, when you go into parts of Africa and parts of Asia, that's their primary source of carbohydrate. So in places like, like Uganda, which is our initial target country, their average consumption is half a kilo per person per day. 
and these are cooking bananas. So they're harvested green when they're very starchy, mm-hmm. and then they're they're steamed or boiled. So what's the science? What have you done? So what we've done, and we, we're first targeting vitamin A and secondly iron, but the vitamin A is the most advanced. And what we're actually doing is we're putting in pro-vitamin A, which is alpha and beta carotene. There's an important reason for that. Alpha and beta carotene, when they're, they're ingested, are converted to vitamin A or retinol in the human body by the liver. And this is most commonly in our layperson um, diet found in carrots. Yes, mm. or... or pumpkins or orange flesh sweet potatoes so it's the orange color yes indeed and they are very orange and you've added this gene for alpha and beta carotene levels enhanced from a i think a banana from papua new guinea isn't it that's right yes there are a a group of bananas known as fey bananas that produce huge amounts of pro-vitamin a much much higher than 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 we're going so five six times higher than our best and they're, they're eaten but primarily in, in Micronesia, Papua New Guinea. So why not just crossbreed with those bananas and get those qualities into the Ugandan fruit? Okay, so that's, that's an important question. And there are groups that are trying to do that. The problem with bananas, you, you can breed them, but it's difficult. But if you want to bring up just a particular trait from, from a wild banana or wild anything, so you first do that first cross. You get half the genes from one parent and half the genes from the other. Yeah. You then have to continually back cross to the original parent that you just wanted to improve. That is really difficult in bananas. Why? Because they're essentially sterile. If you're a banana eater, and I hope you are. Yes, I am. <laughs> of course. When you cut open a banana, sometimes you see those little black specks. Yes. They're the aborted seeds. If you eat a banana that actually has seeds, and there are bananas that do have seeds, particularly the wild diploid bananas, they're like little pebbles. If, if you and I were eating a banana and we hit one of those, if your teeth are a bit brittle, they'd be broken. So that's one of the reasons. They're both male and female, very close to sterile. So crossing back is very difficult. Right now, genetically modified vitamin A-enriched bananas from Queensland have been imported under special conditions to Iowa in the United States for a feeding trial using human volunteers. So why there instead of the target population of Uganda? Because when you mention the words genetic modification and food in the same sentence, many governments and food regulators will run a mile. We don't consider GMOs dangerous, but we know that there's a lot of political opposition to the use of GMOs. On Skype from the Philippines is Howarth Buis. He's the director of Harvest Plus. It's an international not-for-profit dedicated to biofortifying levels of vitamin A, zinc and iron in some of those staple crops in many of the same countries targeted by GM food scientists. Yes, when we started Harvest Plus, we took a decision to use conventional plant breeding. So we didn't want to use GMOs and then find out that we had to put our varieties on the shelf because of the political opposition to them. Which are exactly the kinds of hurdles facing proponents of GM-enhanced food, like Professor James Dale. The Ugandans love their bananas, and they will eat primarily bananas. In Uganda, the name for food is matoki, the name for banana is matoki. They're synonymous. I pointed out that Harvest Plus had already been approved to introduce a vitamin A-enriched sweet potato into Uganda because it was produced by the conventional means of crossbreeding for that trait. So why not follow the same path? Farmers will grow sweet potatoes, and they do grow sweet potatoes. They are 
slowly taking up the idea of a, an orange fleshed as opposed to a white sweet potato. But there's there's a different texture there, so they don't like that different texture. It's much sloppier. We took that back to Howarth Buis from Harvest Plus. The orange varieties of sweet potato have a higher moisture content than the normal varieties, the white varieties that the Ugandans are used to eating, but they're more nutritious because of the provitamin A. So you have to give that information to consumers. You tell mothers that orange sweet potato will help protect their family from vitamin A deficiency, and the families switch over to growing the orange varieties instead of the white varieties. The delivery is going very well. It's a 10 to 15 year process before agricultural varieties become very popular in a country. So you have to stick with it, uh, learn from your mistakes, uh, build on your successes. Okay, so let me now update the original question on saving your child's life through genetically modified food crops. What if that gene used in boosting vitamin A came not from the same fruit or vegetable, but somewhere else altogether. Okay, in the case of tomato, it comes from a plant as well. Gianfranco Doretto is a research scientist at the Italian Agency for New Technologies, Energy and Sustainable Development, and he's been working using alpha and beta carotene to boost vitamin A in potatoes and tomatoes. So where does the gene come from that goes into that famous component of so many Italian dishes? Uh, it was from uh, a model plant that is called uh, Arabidopsis. That is a grass. It's a grass? Yeah. Do you think that people, when you tell them that you've enhanced their tomato by putting the gene from a grass into it and giving it more vitamin A, that's going to be a selling point? Uh, well, it could be, you know, the the, the, the general ups, uh, acceptance is a, is a very important issue. Yeah. And um, it's very tricky. So what I can tell you is that we have collaboration with another group that produced the same golden tomatoes by using the tomato gin. Ah. And they obtained uh, uh, the same result, actually even better. So they w- were able to obtain the, the full conversion of lycopene, that is the, the molecules uh, uh, naturally accumulated uh, in tomato fruit, uh, that's why they are red. So the full conversion of lycopene in beta-carotene. Well, see, that's going to be much easier to sell to a dubious government or public. Correct than using uh, genes from another plant. When it comes to the potatoes, where did you get those genes from? Well, it, it is a bit more complicated. We use uh, uh, genes uh, that are coming from bacteria. But uh, what we did uh, was to, um, how to say, not use the original gene, but just produce uh, synthetic uh, genes that you can ask uh, companies to do. Therein lies the rub, because what you've just described there, as someone who loves food, and so many of us hopefully still trust our food as being good for us because it's often in in a world that's so processed, one of the most natural things we can still choose to buy is fruit and vegetables. To hear that you have synthesised a gene in a laboratory that any company can do and put it into my potato to give me more vitamin A gives me great pause for thought. 
Well, I understand uh, the the point, and um, I understand that that the acceptance can be very um, very uh, difficult to achieve. But uh, you have a uh, uh, you have to consider uh, in the case of potato, if you want to reach that result, uh, you do not have any alternative. <music> I do think there is some utility of a biofortification approach, but I question whether the genetic engineering approach to that is the right way to go. Dr. Michael Hansen is a biologist and ecologist who works with the US Consumers Union, speaking out on issues surrounding food safety and consumer protection. And I ask him if the union has a strict anti-GM stance. No, not at all. We're not against any technology. We do believe, though, with new technologies such as genetic engineering, that there should be required safety assessments uh, before they're allowed on the market and also that uh, everything should be labeled. Dr. Hansen cites the success of Harvest Plus in using conventional breeding to biofortify food as to why we can afford to be cautious in embracing GM techniques. And he remembers something he struck many years ago. I wanted to say is when I heard about these high vitamin A tomatoes that they're trying to do that with the genetic engineering, I just had to laugh because 30 years ago when I was doing postdoctoral work, uh, I actually talked with a number of uh, tomato breeders and there was a tomato breeder out in California who had developed a tomato that had like seven or eight times the uh, vitamin A content, The well, it was the lycopene content. These tomatoes were so incredibly bright red. They were far more nutritious, but at that time in the early 80s, fresh market tomatoes weren't branded. So there was no way you could sell them for any more uh, money or let people know that they were actually uh, had higher nutritional value. So they decided that they would use them as processing tomatoes, you know, that that you put into the uh, cans. That didn't work because when you looked at one of these uh, tomatoes and you cut them open, it is the most blood red I've ever seen. <laughs> and so, no, when you compare that to a regular tomato, they look all pale and washed out. So the packers didn't want them because they made the regular tomatoes look like they were almost this pale orange color. So what and happened to I that just, variety, Michael? What, what happened nothing. to it? Nothing. And so when I heard that people were engineering you know, tomatoes to have this high vitamin A content, it's like, wait a minute, this has already been done by conventional breeding. It was done... 30 years ago, but nobody had decided to go back and to look at that area or to talk to those people. They just wanted to try a GE approach to something because they could get money to do that. It's important to note that all the GM proponents we spoke to claim they're not trying to profit from their research, that there are no patents protecting their outcomes and little or no biotech money going into their projects. Rather, their work is underwritten by philanthropists like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who see biofortifying foods as essential to saving lives. Now to the next part of our story, where I use Skype to head back to the Philippines and catch up with our next guest. Only, something's not quite right. So it was always Bob, there seems to be a lot of banging and crashing going on. Yes, that's because our my office was flooded during uh, the typhoon we had a few weeks ago, and the wood floor is warping. So let me move my chair so I won't. <laughs> it, it sounds like you're being shot at. Well, oh, if we're talking about golden rice, that's probably true. 
Bob Ziegler is the Director General of the International Rice Research Institute. It's a not-for-profit organisation whose catch cry is Rice Science for a Better World. But when it comes to golden rice, this genetically modified beta-carotene-enriched variety, they've struck out. In fact, Bob Ziegler describes it as a saga that's lasted 30 years. Uh, obviously, it's a politically charged topic because... There is, I believe, a uh, misguided sense that if, you, if, if one GMO food is approved, then there will be no regulation on any GMO food. Therefore, we must block golden rice regardless of its potential benefit to the, to the most disadvantaged in the world. I think that extreme ideological black and white view is, is really a disservice it's a disservice to the so-called environmental groups that oppose GMOs. It's a disservice to the the beneficiaries of, um, of golden rice, and I, I think it's a disservice to broader society and that it, uh, it eliminates the possibility of a rational debate over how technology is adopted and used. Dr Michael Hansen from the Consumers Union sees golden rice in a different light. Well, the uh, main problem with golden rice, there's been two versions, golden rice one and golden rice two. Golden rice two had much higher levels of the supposed beta carotene. The problem with it is, is golden rice one and two are japonicas. That's not the rice that the poor actually grow and eat. So it's inappropriate. And in fact, the International Rice Research Institute realized that, and they have actually uh, spent a number of years trying to cross this golden rice, too, into indica varieties that could uh, actually be eaten by the poor in South Asia. Well, that's completely wrong. We've been working exclusively with, with indicas uh, ever since I've been in the area. It's 2005, and work that was underway before I arrived was also an indicus. So, yeah, golden rice has to compete on the market with any other rice. The second problem is the way the poor uh, eat rice is they grow it and then from harvest to harvest they actually store rice for two, three or four months. And there's a question of how much the vitamin A degrades or the beta carotene degrades over time. Yeah, well, we, uh, we know how long rice is stored after harvest. And so one of our criteria is that after that period of time, there still has to be enough beta-carotene in the rice to make a difference uh, clinically. Doctors Bob Ziegler and Michael Hansen contesting the facts over what kind of golden rice has been developed and whether it really stands up to storage. And these points of contention are just the tip of the iceberg. There's other issues such as the impact, if any, of excessive levels of vitamin A in the body and whether there's enough supportive long-term data to warrant the rice's release. In fact, it's fair to say golden rice has become the symbol in a much larger struggle over the role that genetically modified foods could have or should have in global food and nutrient security. But at least Bob Ziegler and Michael Hansen agree on one thing, that the recent field trials of the Indica golden rice have not produced enough yield for farmers to even begin thinking of making a switch. Yeah, right, right. And this is the reason for doing these kinds of evaluations. You have to you, know, you have to test them. I mean, anybody who's been involved in plant breeding and development of varieties knows that it's a war of attrition. The challenge we have with golden rice and trying to work within a regulatory environment that we're in 
is that we can only evaluate one line at a time. Normally in plant breeding, you might have a thousand lines out. Uh, because of uh, restrictions on field trials, etc., we can only we're only allowed to evaluate one line at a time. So you make your best guess, you evaluate that, it looks okay, and then you take it out and you put it in larger field plots and you go, oh, dang. Dr. Bob Ziegler is not alone in bemoaning the limits imposed on testing golden rice. One of the former founders of Greenpeace, Dr. Patrick Moore, who's also an ecologist and scientist, is spearheading an international media campaign in favour of golden rice. Patrick Moore says his former organisation Greenpeace and others like it are committing a crime against humanity in their opposition to GM foods that he believes could solve some of the most pressing health problems in the world. It has certainly been clinically proven. Uh, both adults and children have been fed golden rice in nutritional trials. Those, they were not safety trials because there's, no, there's actually no possible reason to believe there's a safety issue with golden rice. And that is the big lie that is spread by the opposition to golden rice, that there might be some health or environmental problem with golden rice. It's completely ridiculous to imagine that rice, which is just rice that contains beta-carotene, which is a nutrient essential for human health, would cause a health problem. The health problem is the lack of beta-carotene. And that was one thing that was sort of scandalous about both golden rice and even these uh, bananas. They're being fed to people when there has never been a published study showing that these things are safe or showing that they meet this uh, criteria, for example, of reasonable certainty of uh, no harm. If you're doing informed consent with that population, how do you do that when there's no published information about the potential safety of these products? One of the golden rice feeding trials took place in China. It involved children where the supervising Tufts University, which are based in the US, acknowledged that their researcher on the ground in China had failed to properly inform the parents that their children were eating GMO foods. Greenpeace International issued a press release headlined Chinese children used in US-backed GE food trials. In it they claimed... After 20 years of development, this not-so-golden rice is still just a shadowy research project with no applications for commercialisation anywhere in the world. Tens of millions of dollars have been spent on what's a smoke-and-mirrors product, and that could have been better spent on programs that have actually proven to make a lasting and meaningful difference. The researcher who ran the feeding trial has now hired a lawyer and is suing the university and the American Society of Nutrition, claiming the move to retract her paper on the results of that trial is tantamount to defamation. Now, although the International Rice Research Institute was not involved in the trials, Dr Bob Ziegler says he was very pleased with the evidence of boosted vitamin A levels within the children, and he takes issue with the fracas over not informing the parents. Is that an ethical violation? I mean, do, do, these, do, do the parents even know what a GMO is or what a gene is or, or what, I don't, you know? Even if uh, they didn't, isn't it their right to, to know and be informed that... Yeah, I, look, I said this is, you know, this is, I think the ethical question would be, did the researchers knowingly withhold information on a part of the study that would adversely affect, potentially adversely affect the health of their children? The answer to that is clearly no. 
Golden Rice campaigner Dr Patrick Moore agrees. The bioethics committee at the university that approved the design of the experiment approved that the parents be told that it was an, an altered rice, a, a variety of rice that has been altered to contain beta-carotene. But not genetically modified. I take it that term was not used. Is that correct? That is correct. And the reason for that was because it would bias the study if they used it. It said altered. How else did they think it had been altered? By, by, by chimpanzees? No. I by don't people. know. Maybe if I'm a non-scientific Chinese parent, perhaps these are the questions that I don't know even to ask. We're all genetically modified, Michael. You and me are not identical to our parents, and neither is any organism on the face of this earth that was produced through sexual reproduction. And that's right, but that's the key here, isn't it, Patrick? Because this was not due to sexual reproduction. This was due to human intervention at a laboratory level. That's right, and the same reason we don't put produced by radiation-induced mutations on all of the varieties of foods that have been produced that way. Uh, about 70% of all the foods you buy in the grocery store have been created through bombarding seeds with high-level gamma radiation but for some reason, the very precise technique of inserting specific genes to confer desirable traits such as nutritional uh, improvement on a seed are, are, are seen like some kind of Frankenstein monster. Former co-founder of Greenpeace, Dr Patrick Moore, clearly sharing Bob Ziegler's impatience. In the meantime, I ask Michael Hansen from the US Consumers Union if he really believes there are conventional methods of biofortification that can save time, money, and more importantly, lives. Uh, yes, I do. And I also think that what the long-term uh, answer to this uh, beyond food fortification and supplementation is to actually uh, get people to eat a more diverse diet. There's many uh, sort of local crops out there in developing countries that are incredibly high in uh, vitamin A. And if People can just be taught that they should be growing more green vegetables and more diversity in their vegetable gardens, that that can help as well. Because for the very poor, getting them to diversify their diet is, I think, very important. And I think that's a better uh, approach than the sort of high-tech genetic engineering. You can subscribe to RN First Bite via iTunes and download longer interviews with Patrick Moore and Michael Hansen from the RN First Bite website. Also, while you're there, read our feature-length article on the topic and add your comments to the mix. We're anticipating a pretty strong reaction. There's also links to research papers, opinion pieces and the World Health Organization's stance. The WHO's position on using genetic modification to achieve these goals is they have no position. RN First Bites producer is Kathy Pryor. Technical production from Melissa May and Mark Veer. I'm Michael McKenzie, and next time, the latest breakthroughs in dealing with supermarket waste, and I go in search of Australia's citrus grenade, the finger line. I'll talk to you then.